0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. And each week we scour the Internet looking for really interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have Todd Weir on the show, and we are going to talk about his book, Monism, Science, Philosophy, Religion, and the History of a Worldview. It's a little bit unusual for us, because Todd edited this book, and the book comes from a conference, which was on monism. So I'm excited to do something new on the New Books Network. And I have to say also, as I told Todd in the interview, I had studied the philosophy of science, that's what I call it, when I was an undergraduate. So this book was of particular interest to me, because it sort of took me down memory lane. It also is relevant to the present, as will become clear in the course of the interview. Many of the people that you may listen to are monists and don't even know it, which is a peculiar thing. But there is a rich tradition of monism, which Todd and his colleagues have revivified in this book. So let me first say thank you, Todd, for writing the book and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Todd, could you kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I was a a student at Brown University in 1988 and uh, had the opportunity to take a semester abroad. And instead of going to Tübingen in West Germany, which I thought would be somewhat similar to the United States, I decided I should go to the exchange program in Rostock, which is in East Germany. Mm -hmm. And so I lived almost a year in East Germany in the 80s. And then after I graduated, I at some point thought I'd like to go back and live in Germany. And then what had interested me, East Germany, had become part of the past. So I, I then, at that point, began to study history, became a historian in, in uh, Germany, and then moved over and did a PhD at uh, Columbia, where I think I, I met you um, at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, I, I started out being very interested in German socialism, the history of German socialism. And I then decided that the topic that really interested me was the relationship between socialism and religion because I was interested in this kind of uh, the utopian aspects of socialism. And uh, for my Ph.D. dissertation, I decided to write about German socialism and secularism and their relationship. So I started investigating secularism, and it took me all the way back to the middle of the 19th century to uh, these movements of essentially dissenting Catholics and Protestants and Jews in the middle of the century. And um, I was looking at the uh, their, their development from these Uh, essentially rationalist Christians, into atheists, pantheists, within the space of just a few years, and then their eventual connection to socialism. So this was kind of one of the intellectual sources of modern socialism, was this type of um, secularist thinking. So um, in the midst of all this research, I I came across this figure, Ernst Haeckel, who was a, a German biologist and zoologist, who was known as the German Darwin because he was the person who did most to uh, propagate Darwin's ideas in Germany. But he had a a specific spin on it, which is he tried to take Darwinism as a scientific theory and turn it into a philosophy. And this philosophy he called monism or monism. And uh, from the 1860s up until the uh, first world war, he, he was the main person to propagate this new term in Germany, monism. And, I latched on to it because he was one of the most popular figures among the secularists, the free thinkers, the free religious, um, eventually even a group called the monists. And I thought, well, here's the real key to understanding secularism, right? Because what is secularism? Secularism is obviously anti-clericalism. It's groups that argue against the church and its teachings, it argues in favor of separation of church and state. But what I found was that, Whenever groups organize around this topic, they are never just anti-clerical. You know, you could be an anti-clerical socialist, for instance. Uh, but if you're going to form an organization that is anti-clerical, you actually almost inevitably become tied up into this worldview. And this worldview is actually best described as monism. Um, so, uh, so that's how I, I ended up becoming interested in, in this particular philosophy and decided to do a whole book on the subject because I just thought this is a really fascinating way to connect philosophy, science, religion, and politics. Mm-hmm. And so indeed, that's, it, that's it, how I came it, to.
0: It. Indeed, it is. Uh, I, I think that's exactly right. So let's let's get some of the terms uh, down now. Um, so let's start with monism itself. If that is opposed to dualism, right? Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So the yeah. uh, you know the classic figure that gets mentioned probably would be uh, Benedict Spinoza. Who was a, a Dutch uh, philosopher from the 17th century, and you know he was coming just after uh, Descartes, and Descartes talked about the this uh, dualistic system of separation of mind and, and body as a way of understanding um, the difference um, in human experience between uh, physical and mental experiences. So, in a sense, that was you know that's really taken as the, the starting point of modern philosophy, Descartes. And, um, and Spinoza is a bit of a reaction to Descartes, and he said, well, behind the, the apparent difference between mind and matter, there's actually a, a, a unitary substance. So the term substance is the, um, the key term that gets connected to Spinoza. Uh, so monism is essentially a philosophy that says behind every apparent dualism, there's actually a unity, there's one original substance. And so monist systems try to articulate this belief that dualisms are uh, fallacies and that um, essentially we have to get back to that original principle. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of a loose definition of monism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just to put
0: it very simply, there aren't two things or even three things or even four things. There's one kind of thing
1: and it accounts for everything. Exactly. Exactly. So monists would, would try to figure out what is that principle that explains everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh,
0: just to continue with, uh, terms for a second, I think most people today, and I I would include academics here, would associate monism with a kind of uh, naturalism or materialism. And this is the thesis that that thing is stuff. That is physical stuff or energy. And that all of the phenomena that we see or can experience in the world
1: can be reduced to this observable stuff. Is that right? Uh, yeah there there are these different strands of monism, so there there really are monisms, uh, mm-hmm. so for instance, in Spinoza, he still used this notion of of God um, as that original stuff, um, so it was actually what you might call a neutral monism halfway between spirit and matter, right, right. that would be say a Spinoza take on it and then at the beginning of the nineteenth century, you have figures like like uh, uh, Hegel and Schelling, these German philosophers who, with their kind of idealistic systems, try to say the world spirit is what is driving forward history. And in a sense, the world spirit is creating everything, matter and thought. And so that's, a you could say, an idealistic monism, right. where that original thing is the world spirit. Right. So what happens in the middle of the 19th century is you have a switch then from this idealistic monism into a materialistic monism. Right. So that's what exactly you were mentioning. Right. Was that uh, you know the idea that all that really matters is matter, and the only thing that the only way of explaining it is physical science, natural mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would call the shift from idealistic monism to materialistic or naturalistic monism. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but there's yeah. a kind of play between these two. And one of the things I wanted to point out to listeners, is because I think most listeners would just say, well, this is just sort of a hardcore materialism, right? A reductionism or materialism. Like everything is stuff and even the mind is stuff and our notions of God are stuff and everything can be reduced to stuff. But there is this other thing. There is this other really kind of lively tradition that says, no, it's actually not stuff. There's something else back there. And this is a constant sort of play in monism. Is that right? I mean, people will go back and forth between this idealistic strain and materialistic strain
1: yeah i think that there's almost a uh, like a spiritual disposition to monists many of them where they may they may articulate their entire theory in terms of materialism so for instance he- heckel who was this biologist he was a mechanist he only believed that you could explain physical phenomena through mechanical processes so there's no room for spirit there's no room for god nothing right there's only these mechanical processes and yet his philosophy uh kind of kept growing into a kind of spiritual dimension where he eventually said that the natural laws, if you take them as a whole, um, are a type of, reveal a kind of divine unity to the entire cosmos. Um, So you do have that kind of switching that goes on in monism between this kind of mechanistic materialism and a spiritual um, dimension. And and for, for many of them, they actually go entirely from one pole to the other, so you could take a figure like uh, Annie Besant. She was a famous atheist in the 1880s in, in Britain. And uh, in the middle of her, you know, at the height of her fame as an atheist, she switched over and became the leader of British theosophy, which is a philosophy of kind of a spiritualist monism, uh, which, you know, believes in reincarnation and the movement of the of, of spirit through history. Um, so she flipped entirely. But that's really in keeping with this monist uh, way of thinking. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So you mentioned also earlier, and I hate to go back here, but I will uh, sort of uh, sort of rough anti clericalism of the 18th century and the Enlightenment. Most people will know about Voltaire. And anti clericalism here is more or less a political movement, and it says that the church is corrupt and should probably be cleaned up. It can't be dispensed with. This is the kind of anti clericalism I think that some of the founding fathers of the United States had. They didn't want to do away with religion. They just thought that uh, that the religions that existed were just not very good and should be cleaned up. Um, but how do we get from there? And I think this is through Heckel. How do we get from there to? Uh, yeah, these churches are nice things, but that's that's kind of a superstition. And really, everything is stuff. Uh, how do we get? And, and we need a worldview to kind of encapsulate that view. How, how do we get from what is really a political movement to a philosophy, or as you say, a Weltanschauung,
1: a worldview? Uh, Well, there's various things that are happening in the middle of the 19th century that that mark off uh, kind of a transition away from just an Enlightenment uh, anti-clericalism. mean, the Enlightenment, the the term that gets um, brought up is deism, right? This belief in a kind of pantheistic God who's everywhere and thus nowhere, in a sense. Um, The clockmaker God that has receded away from human history and so on. Um, What happens in the middle of the century is, on the one hand, we have this Um, this firm belief in natural science and natural science comes up with this reductionism in the middle of the 19th century. So they say there actually can be no outside influences on physical processes. Um, So that's, that's something that happens in physiology, like a kind of a a claim that is made in physiology. And all it really takes is for somebody to say, well, let's, let's push that claim outside of science. Mm -hmm. Let's say, it's not just for experimental purposes that we exclude the operation of God. Actually, we we should just extend this and exclude the idea of the operation of God everywhere. And that's what the materialists do in the 1850s. And so Heckel's coming just after that. Um, so that type of radical exclusion of the idea of a deity is a real change that happens mm-hmm. at that time. And on top of it, you've got all of these social movements. So this is... You know, in the 1840s leading up to the revolution of 1848 you've got completely different social circles interested in these ideas now at the enlightenment time you've only you know you've, mostly it's an intellectual phenomenon in the 1840s suddenly you have uh, work the working class or the let's say educated artisans becoming interested in atheism and science that that is a big change mhm
0: mhm mhm so did did um now you mentioned that uh, well let's talk about uh Heckle, again, he talks about these um, world riddles. Can you talk a little bit about those? Uh,
1: yeah, the interesting thing um, was that uh, what I like to do when I write history is I like to go back and uh, take the, the concepts and the terms that are used at the time period and then actually uh, take them on board as analytical tools. Mm-hmm. And I did that a bit with this idea of world riddles. Yeah. Essentially, there was a debate in the 1870s. There was a, a, an opponent of Heckel. Another m- mechanistic thinking physiologist, uh, René Dubois-Raymond, actually a German.
0: I was I was so and, happy
1: to read his name, I have to say. You don't read a lot about him. So, anyway, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, no, you're welcome. But he's a, he, was this, he was this very big name in science. Big, yeah, well, you know, right. I, mean, I, I don't mean to kind of. People,
0: but these people were like stars. I mean, they were Stephen Jay Goulds of their time. I mean, you mentioned Haeckel. Oh, should absolutely. Be, I mean, he was like the Stephen Jay Gould of his time.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it was actually, actually, Dubois-Raymond du- du is the Stephen J. Gould of okay, the time, as ahead. I'll get to in a sec. Yeah. But uh, essentially, Dubois-Raymond was looking at people like Heckel who were making these fantastic claims in the name of science about, you know, religion and the world and, and philosophy, culture. And Dubois-Raymond du said, wait a minute, this is, this is going too far. We have to be responsible natural scientists and only make claims in the realm of science, what is provable, what is knowable, what is perhaps falsifiable. And he said, he put out seven riddles, world riddles, he called them. And he said, there are seven things that science cannot answer. And those are, for example, the origin of consciousness, the origin of life, um, and and so on. So he he set them up as, as limits to science. And that's what he called it, the limits of science. And he said, these should be shibboleths. And uh, but that, that's that uh, term from the Bible, which is, right. a, which is a word that is meant to um, reveal foreign tribes right. and, uh, you know, make them um, set up boundaries. So he thought if he could set up these limits to science, science could then be a responsible, mature field of activity, and you could get rid of all of these worldview fanatics, right? Mm-hmm. So Heckel takes the idea of the worldview— and says, the world riddle, sorry, he takes the idea of the world riddle, and he says, actually, monism can prove all of these, can explain all of these riddles, all right? So he says, look, Darwinian um, uh, evolution can explain the origin of consciousness, um, so he would then go and, you know, create theories of the emergence of consciousness within an evolutionary model. Mm-hmm. And he does this with all seven of the world riddles that Dubois-Raymond sets out. And and that's, in a sense, the way in which he actually builds the whole kind of philosophical, spiritual edifice of monism around the riddles. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's actually what Dubois-Raymond was doing, was trying to segment the fields of knowledge. And what Heckel's trying to do is he's trying to unify all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why the, the the world riddles are so crucial. And Heckel then names his big bestseller monist manifesto of 1899. He calls it the world riddles. Mm-hmm. And it's it's precisely taking on the challenge of, uh, of Du bois Robert- And the connection, this oh, sorry, the connection to Stephen Jay Gould is that Stephen Jay Gould is famous for developing this idea of, um, of non-overlapping magisteria, <laughs> which was Stephen Jay Gould was fighting against these Darwinists who want to explain everything from natural science, exactly the position of a century earlier of dubois Raymond. And so he says there should be non-overlapping magisteria. In other words, theology does not overlap with natural science. And so they're each, in their own sphere, autonomous and, and legitimate. Right. And that's precisely the, that sort of anti-monist thing, and and so Stephen Jay Gould is a perfect anti-monist,
0: right? So what I was going to say about Heckle's book is that um, <clears throat> I, I think I said, I think you said in your book that it sold three hundred thousand copies.
1: Is that right? Yeah. It was a huge <laughs> bestseller and it was translated into I think, you know, uh, thirty languages or something. You know, it, it was a huge phenomenon at the time. That's
0: truly incredible. Three hundred. You have to understand, like that that's even today that would be an eno- absolutely enormous number of copies for a book like that to sell. Even today. Yeah. 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 So um, I guess one thing I want to ask you is because you know, these are kind of are are were were Heckel's responses in, at all convincing to people?
1: Um, yes. I mean, and this is kind of where it's interesting to look at the popular science or the, the sort of sociology of knowledge, because effectively 300,000 people found that book very enticing and purchased it and probably more than 300,000 read it. Oh, yeah. um, and, and for the most part, they would have been non, non-academics. It's a popular work. And, and what's interesting with monism is that it often is rejected by academic philosophers academic scientists but really accepted by the by the general public Mm -hmm. um and and then you know monism really uh, much of its history has to be written outside of academia Mm -hmm. because uh you know major figures of of uh Mm -hmm. you know early 20th century thought opposed monism max weber the german sociologist um other philosophers took it on and said this is nonsense you know it doesn't they're claiming to explain the entire world from a single principle, but that's, that's just, in the end, a, a value judgment. Uh-huh. It's not real science. But nonetheless, for the public, it turned out to be very popular. Uh-huh. And especially for social movements, um, emancipatory social movements as particular, they could really identify with what Heckel was saying. And use it for their own purposes. Right, right. Well, it is a great
0: delegitimizing tool. We'll come to that in a second. Because if you're claiming mm. your authority from, let's say, God, and you have monism in your kit, uh, that can move you around that pretty easily. So, But let's stick with just like, one question that I think like everybody asks themselves. like, What is the origins of consciousness? That seems like a mysterious one. You know, intuitively, like you have these thoughts, and there seems to be this stuff, consciousness. You can't really explain it. You can't really even describe it. I mean, really, it's, it's notoriously difficult to describe what consciousness is. Um and, and I, I guess, uh, what, uh, what I, I guess a question I have is like, what what was the objection to the notion, the materialistic reductionist notion that I'm sure that Haeckel had about monism, uh, that basically consciousness just arose out of stuff, um, and was sort of an epiphenomenon? What, what what was a possible objection to that?
1: Well, I think that um, you know, I'm probably dubois Raymond would say, you know, it, it's consciousness is produced by the brain. Um, but I think his argument was that um, science was not at the point of being able to explain how, how it emerged, right? The fact that it's produced by a physical organ may be clear, but precisely how, in evolutionary terms, it, there was that, uh, I don't know, jump into consciousness. Right. Um, that, that particular thing could not be explained, even if it could be assumed, Right.
0: but this but, but then but then the alternative hypothesis that is if it's not I mean the, 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 that we can't explain it is not a reason that it can't be explained so the alternative hypothesis that like consciousness comes from something else some non stuff I mean is there any support? I mean did, could anybody say well it, it comes from God then that of course sure. that, of course raises the that, question well what about God? I think. That, from, I think that,
1: you know, then you have uh, I think psychology. the point of yeah. s- somebody like Dubois Raymond or even Stephen Jay Gould is is to to not make a claim where you can't prove something, uh, and in a sense, you know, they would they would be happily taken on board by people that believe in God. Um, so that that I, I don't think it's the case that Dubois Raymond or Stephen Jay Gould are necessarily approaching this from a you know a, a religious perspective. They're just merely trying to say. Let's not make a claim where we can't prove it. Right. A, um, vi- of course, in vi- the eyes in the eyes of the monists, in the eyes of the monists, they establish a connection between their scientific opponents, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, Heckel, uh, sorry, uh, Dubois Raymond. They establish a connection between them and the churches, and they say mm-hmm. there's a collusion there. Right. Yeah. That's an extraordinarily high standard. I mean, the,
0: the standard for most people, and I think this is why most people just think, most people who are atheists, let's put it that way, say, well, you know, everything comes from stuff, God is sort of a superstition, and consciousness arises from matter, is because it's sort of a reasonable inference. I mean, it's not, you know, because we can't see anything else that causes it, and God doesn't appear very often, and so it's sort of a reasonable, you know, Humean in, in, inference, like, well, I can't think of a better explanation, so it's probably this. But it seems like the anti-monists are, like, asking a lot more. In order to substantiate a belief, a lot more. You know, you have to actually show the mechanism. That's tough.
1: Well, I, I think that the the real issue for people like Dubarimon was the was the fact that these monists are then claiming not only to be able to explain, for instance, the origin of religion or to, to disprove religion, but they also want to make claims in the realm of culture mm-hmm. and make realm, make claims in in the um, you know in the in the products of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Because if they if they're explaining everything within a single set of laws, and for for Heckle, it's really Darwinian selection. If they're explaining everything with those tools, uh, they then are encroaching into the realm of other sciences and essentially invalidating their fundamental principles, which are not based, obviously, in Darwinian selection. Right. Um, so the other disciplines are very alert, respond very allergically to these monists encroachments. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think that that's, you know, part of it. And so theology is essentially another case, although, you know, what we've mentioned before is the monists tend to have a, a, be able to swing into the spiritual very quickly. So it's for the, for the Christians, they see monism as a, as a, a kind of a, um, a spiritual challenge, a challenger of a competitor.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the cultural resonance of monism, this idea that there is one sort of substance that is substance in the very loose sense of the term. It might be idealistic, it might be materialist. Um, and how it attracted uh, various political um, groups or people who are involved in movements, social movements, movements that we ordinarily would not Associate. So can you say a few words about that, about its sort of political resonance?
1: Sure. Um, the, the movements that I've looked at in this context are the labor movement and socialism in general, um, but also the women's movement and uh, the homosexual rights movement. Um, I suppose the latter two are, are sort of interesting examples. Um, if you take the women's movement of the 19th century – Uh, there was this embrace by many, especially German, but also British uh, feminists, early feminists, of monism. And it's a bit surprising because in the 20th century, in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, many feminists rejected the idea that biology as a discipline could help the women's movement, right? Because in the 1980s, they said, well, what does biology do, sociobiology? It really naturalizes inequality, right? It it argues Mm -hmm. about the biological origins of inequality. Um, But in the 19th century, you have women uh, fighting um, Christian morality. That's one of the key things, right? Their their identity as women is largely defined through Christian moral rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And so monism offered a kind of a new way of grounding um, morality, right? Uh, the, the, the monists, monism evolutionary thought, um, had a way of explaining, uh, female oppression as a historical phenomenon in the process of social evolution. Mm-hmm. And so even though these feminists tended to think that women's inferiority was in some sense biological, they could nonetheless argue that it was historically malleable. And so they could argue that given the proper change in circumstances for women, good legislation, equal rights, and so on, women would develop um, towards uh, greater strength and, and equality with men. So, um, so feminists were, were one audience. Uh, homosexual rights movement, there was an early pioneer, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. In, in Berlin at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, he was also a sexologist. So he had a theory of sexuality, and he had a theory of homosexuality, where he said that it was actually the, the middle point between the two sexes. So if you, if you understand male and female as kind of poles biologically, homosexuality would be a stage between the two. And so it, he said that it's a monism, of, of uh, mm-hmm. sexual division, homosexuality. So he... I mean, it doesn't sound revolutionary, but in the time, it actually created a natural place for homosexuality as a, as a legitimate manifestation of human biology rather than as a disease or a perversion. Um, so that was... Monism was very powerful, and he dedicated his major work of sexology to Ernst Haeckel. Hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: And
0: so then... Um it seems to me that the, the group that would be most strongly attracted to um monism, and actually to me a little bit hard to differentiate from monism would be um, followers of Marx, that is sort of yeah, materialist socialists.
1: Yeah. Um it, it's it's true there's a lot of um interaction throughout the history of of socialism between these kind of worldview secularists and you know, Marxism or people with theories of economic theories of class and so on. Uh, it's a constant interchange. And if you look at any bio- biography of a leading socialist from Marx to, August was Bebel, the head of the German right. uh, movement, even to Mao Zedong, you, you find this, this interplay, right? Where they, they tend to all be very interested in religious dissent early on and worldview. Um, so, you know, th- there is that, that interaction. And in a, in a kind of a, you know, even in a narrow sense, I mean, people talk about Marxism sometimes as a monist system. Uh, particularly, you know, I think people think of, of uh, Engels as somebody whose idea of the dialectic is ultimately very monistic. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a huge debate, I think, about how much the Marxists took positivism on board, how much they really, in the end, thought that they're... Uh, philosophy of history was uh, connected to biological theories and so on.
0: So, I mean, is there really a difference between?
1: I mean, I guess I'm asking for your opinion. Well, but
0: well, I, well I, can't, uh, I can't differentiate the two very well. When I read Hegel and then I read Heckel, <laughs> and I don't see the difference really.
1: Uh, well, I think that what tends to be the case is the monists tend not to have tend not to think dialectically. Mm-hmm. They don't think about this interaction of, um, you know, two principles. Say the the consciousness and society, uh, where where there's you know the, the idea of a kind of the potential in Hegelian thought for these um, jumps. Uh, the, these that the dialectic can, you know, let's take a revolution for instance, can invert um, the the prior terms of of consciousness and society and and set set history in a new direction with a new dialectic mm-hmm. emerging, right? So that the Monists tend to believe really in evolution, which is for the most part a gradualist theory um, where, where there's only one real driving principle, selection. Um, and there's kind of just a, a continual morphing of matter and thought and so on. So the, the, um, When you see where monists are operating in the socialist world, it tends to be with evolutionary socialism. So somebody like uh, Edward Bernstein, Mm -hmm. who was the famous figure of revisionism, uh, he was very committed early in his life to, you know, secularist philosophies. And when he was in exile in England with the Fabian Circle, he encountered again this type of thinking. The English Fabians you could call um, monist socialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they really take on board a lot of Darwinian theory and their social thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that all the early
0: German socialists had read Heckel. I say this because there are some names in here that I recognize as the founders of early German socialism. I mean, we mentioned Bebel and, and then later Bernstein, and, and I think Karl Liebknecht makes an appearance, and I don't yeah. know about Rosen Luxemburg, but yeah, so um, <clears throat> this would, this was a, it was a well-known doctrine.
1: It was a well-known doctrine, and a lot of the um, leading socialists believed that that this type of stuff was much more accessible to the workers. Mm-hmm. So in terms of educating the workers away from you know, church knowledge and, and their traditional sources of, of knowledge – a lot of them said, we'll start off with the heckle and then go maybe to the heckle. <laughs> um, so that's, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and in fact, today, you, you, heard, you, heard, you heard my discussion of the dialectic just now. I mean, it, it's very difficult, uh, I think, to, um, to read Marx, uh, you know, as a philosopher and, and be able to then 10 minutes later turn around and say what it was that you read. Whereas with, with, with Heckel you know, you read the world riddle and you, he just gives you that knowledge and it's very simple and it's very convincing and it's totalizing and mm-hmm. it's oppositional and when you have that book you're ready to go you know mm-hmm. so imagine an educated worker gets a book like that sits through you know in a week he's done and he feels like he grasps this powerful knowledge
0: right so it would be a little bit like reading uh, i was going to say a richard dawkins book but i find him completely just absolutely dense i can't it's like i can't get through them um, yeah. I'm, trying, I'm trying to think who it would be. <laughs> so then you mentioned also and this, I found kind of really remarkable that there's a, there, there are monist ethics and monist aesthetics. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. The, um, what's what, what would a monist about, ethic be? I just try to figure that out. Uh, I mean, monist ethics are essentially for these anti-clerical secularists, right? They've, they've, they've gotten away from Christian morality and they want to explain what it is that is good, how people should le- lead their lives. Um, and do remember that, that the, the, these groups come out of dissenting religion, right? So these are major preoccupations for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in trying to replace traditional religion with something new, they really need it, a moral system. And they try to then, um, make it compatible with theories of, for instance, evolution. And uh, you know, one of the figures I, I've looked at, um, a free religious preacher in the 1870s, um, he says essentially um, morality has to be means and rationality. Right. right? We have to we have to think about the biological good of the race mm-hmm. or of the people, right? And make our moral judgments based in that. Rationale. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I, of course, we all know where this leads. It mm-hmm. leads to eugenic thought, right? Uh, get rid of the uh, of the, uh, the 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 crippled and the and the demented. Okay, that's not what that's not what these secularists were talking about in the 19th century. But but certainly towards the end of the 19th century, even Heckel is very interested in eugenics, and he's very interested in the survival of the fittest in among the human beings. So there is a kind of very dark edge to this monist. Um, ethics uh, that comes out very strongly, particularly in the hands of uh, conservative nationalists who take up monist thinking. Right. Um, well, so one thing that
0: I, I guess one thing to say about that is that it, it rests on a misreading of Darwin. Because I- anyone who reads Darwin correctly knows that natural selection is just a mechanism, and its results are just consequences, and they are neither good nor bad; they are just are. Um, and and so driving this notion. That somehow you can say what's good and bad depending on these consequences is sort of, uh, like I say, it's not a good reading of Darwin.
1: Yeah, but it's, again, exactly typical of monism, which is to take a a, a scientific principle and expand it outside of the realm of science. Uh, Uh So, you know, Darwin's famous for being, uh, you know, a reserved British gentleman, and he just wasn't going to make claims about God Mm -hmm. and ethics. But Mm -hmm. Heckel was not going to be stopped, you know, and he has things (laughs) to say about that. Um, You know, and and um, I think what's interesting is if you look at debates in the 1920s, for example, you'll find that there are two kind of camps of monistic thinking individuals. Some of them tend to be interested in eugenics as a way of, um, you know, selection, getting involved in the the biological, um, you know, whatever, continuation of certain strains of biological matter through through determining who you can marry and who can reproduce and so on. But you also have a a more socialist monist tradition, which is very Lamarckian, which believes that, uh, that if you change the environment in which selection is taking place, you can you can positively influence the outcomes. So in the Soviet Union or among German socialists, they argue from a monist point of view that ethics means socialism, mm-hmm. right? We have to improve the living conditions of the working class, and then naturally will tend to end alcoholism, degeneracy, and so on. Uh, and on the other side, you've got these sort of you know, proto-Nazi um, folkish thinking conservatives who say, you know, we have to patrol the, the purity of the race and make sure that we're keeping undesirable elements out of our gene pool. Mm-hmm. All right, so you've got these two, two ethics, two ethical systems that are both monistic. Yeah. You know, I guess another thing that occurs to me is that, and I don't know if this
0: is true of all of them, but it seems the Monists, at least at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, had um, a certain hubris that was uh, not found in other political movements. That is that uh, they were led to believe that um, they had figured things out and they could change things,
1: big things. True? Yeah, oh, absolutely, especially um, in the the actual Monist League itself. So Heckel, as an old man, he was born in, I think, 1833, but in 1906 he founds a Monist League. Wow. And um, and the president uh, elector, uh, the president in 1911 is uh, Wilhelm Ostwald, who's a Nobel Prize-winning chemist. And under Ostwald's leadership, the Monus League develops a huge array of programs. Right? They want to. They're engaged in artificial languages, uh, uh, as Esperanto. Mm-hmm. Right, promoting Esperanto. They're they're promoting the peace movement. They're promoting eugenics. They're promoting women's movement. They're promoting uh, a whole array of things. And uh, he made this famous comment at the uh, Congress. He said, "I'm, I'm, a, you know, officially, I'm closing the 19th century and I'm opening up the beginning of the Monist century." Monist, century. right? Mm-hmm. So in 19, whatever, 11, he believed that that was the beginning of the Monist century. Mm-hmm. And so there was this incredible hubris and this technological fantasy that with with modern science and uh, and and a, and a good campaign against the churches. <laughs> they could transform <laughs> society. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we don't want to make too much fun of that. I mean, we live in
0: the result of attempts to do that, and obviously they were disastrous, but I think at the time, you know, a lot of the, I always call them the right-thinking people, sort of looked on this with favor. Like, yeah, this is this is a good idea. We should do this. Um,
1: yeah. but what, And then what happens is that the Mona century, according to my argument, lasts about three years. <laughs> um, I mean the, the the one that the one that Oswald declares right because then comes the war, right and and the, the, this whole left liberal fantasy about changing the world according to scientific principles it kind of falls apart right and there's these huge power struggles or whatever struggles inside of the monist movement between pacifists, socialists on the one side and and nationalists on the other. So Oswald quits in 1915 because his organization remains pacifist. And he doesn't want to. He's he embraces the war aims of the German army, Mm -hmm. Um, and then, but after the war, that that kind of that hubris turns into an insecurity among these liberal uh, technocrats, and liberalism, of course, just erodes in the post-war period, particularly in Germany, Uh, and and these people go in various directions. I mean, some of them, you know, a handful of them certainly end up in the far right. Um, you know, groups that will eventually land with the Nazis, um, and some of them go with the left. And it's but that whole confidence is it evaporates. Yeah, I among see. the liberals. So let's talk a little bit about that. After um, I think it's 1908.
0: Is that the right date? Um, that, so uh, explain what happens with uh, with uh, monist ideas and how how they influence and are molded by the sort of three big political movements of that era up through 1945, and that would be um, communism in the Soviet Union and the national socialism in, in Germany, and I suppose fascism in Italy, and then also the, the Western democracies. So let's start with monism in the Soviet Union. Does it just survive there
1: and have any impact? I mean, well, um, yes. I mean, there's an interesting um, debate that goes on before the First World War. The only real work of philosophy that Lenin ever writes, all right, is an attack on monism. <laughs> Because there was this circle of intellectual Bolshevists, uh, Bolsheviks rather, uh, around Alexei Bogdanov and right. Lunacharsky and Gorky, and they essentially embraced monism before the war. And um, and, and being Russia, of course, they, they really push it into this kind of uh, almost psychedelic <laughs> dimension. Um, it's a bit wacky, it seems to me, many of their claims. But Bogdanov's this fascinating character. He's a physician, an intellectual, uh, but he's a monist. and um, And... Uh, Lenin sees a real danger for his movement with the merchants of all this this type of thinking and uh, and he attacks it imperial criticism i think is the name yeah, of Yeah i his remember that the name of the book is is kind of funny Yeah, yeah. so imperial criticism is the name for essentially imperial monism yeah. That's the type of monist thinking uh-huh. so he he says absolutely not compatible with marxist dialectical thinking and mm-hmm. so on he says no not proper materialism out it goes but nonetheless after the after the revolution is successful um, these monists, uh, you know, some of them have positions of power. I mean, Bogdanov has an institute. Certainly, Lunacharsky is the head of the, the He's the commissar of enlightenment. Right. Gorky is a household name. Um, in niches, through in various places in the Soviet scientific universe, um, there's a lot of monistic activity. Um, and even one of the big uh, scientists of the Stalin era, Lysenko, um, it seems to me, is is clearly a a sort of follower of this kind of Lamarckian theory of evolution. And he, uh, that's essentially a kind of a monistic, um, thing. So certainly in the Soviet Union, um, in niches, and there's this fascinating essay in the, in the book by Igor Polyansky, who's a a Russian, um, historian of science. And it's, uh, that's why I'm talking about the surreal elements. I just comes from reading his, uh, his work, but, uh, you know, they had all these experiments in the 1920s, like trying to cross orangutans with human beings, <laughs> which actually in an experimental. I don't even want to know about that. Really. I don't even <laughs> want to know about it either. But uh, you know, these kind of things there's, there are all of these uh, experiments. Um, Bogdanov had a had an institute for experimenting with blood transfusions mm-hmm. as a way of um, prolonging life. Yeah, um, and he died on a, using um, engaging in, in you know self experimentation with blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, and that, that, there should be a lot more written about this monism in well, in the whole 20th century as a whole, we don't know that much, but there are clearly um, you know strands. And to go on to the, your other example, yeah, so the, national socialism national socialism There's a, there's a very good essay by uh, Heiner Fangerau in this book um, who writes about debates between racial theorists and monists in the 1920s and and leading up into the Nazi period. And essentially there's, this is a big debate in the history of monism because one of the first books written about monism was written by a a historian called Daniel Gassman back in the seventies. And he essentially argues that, uh, gave Hitler his ideas. Okay. I'm, I'm being, I'm being a bit too (laughs) uh, short with that, but, but essentially there's an argument of a direct continuity Uh between what Heckel was talking about and Nazi racial thinking. And 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 other people have come along, like the uh, the uh, Chicago historian um, uh, Robert Richards, in his biography of Heckel, which was a, a big work of a, a couple of years ago, and he says, no, Heckel uh, can't be blamed for that because, of course, he dies in 1919. And when he makes statements about, uh, I don't know, uh, anti-Semitism, he's not an anti-Semite, and... He eventually, he's trying to say, well, let's exculpate Heckel, it's not his fault, and so on. But what I think is there's really the, you know, the middle ground is is the correct answer. And that, um, you know, we don't have to look directly at at, um, Heckel, but I think we can say that there's a lot of monistic thinking among um, Mm -hmm. racial theorists and among the Nazis in general. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying, this essay by Fangerau he looks exactly at that on a narrow level, the the monists um, are rejected by the Nazi, you know, connected thinkers because they um, they emphasize the mechanistic aspects too much,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and they tend not to um, favor racial thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so effectively, they're not they're not accepted by the Nazis. But in a broader sense, if you look at you know any kind of definition of Basic naturalistic monism, and look at what he- what Hitler is writing in his in Mein Kampf. Um, I mean, throughout it, it's very clear that Hitler thinks that there is a unity of spirit and matter in the German race, and that there is a- going to be a specific worldview that's going to be rooted in the biological mm-hmm. material of the German race, and that he is the one who is promoting that worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I-, I think there's a big argument to be made that the Nazi. Worldview was monistic, if not monist mm-hmm.
0: and then in the, uh, in the in the liberal democracies or I guess we call it the Western tradition, does it survive and i 'm thinking particularly of uh, I mentioned this in the pre interview the logical positivists and then the Vienna circle and these these people that study philosophy of science did it have any impact on them
1: um, yeah there's, there is an interesting uh, article in the in the book about precisely these these uh, logical positivists of the early um, 20th century and that Um, You know, they were trying to do something very similar to what uh, Heckel was wanting to do. Um, They're both trying to unify all of the sciences. Um, The difference would be that Heckel wanted to do it all based on sort of a single set of laws. So it's much more unitary in the sense that it all comes out of Darwinian evolution, whereas those logical positivists are... Um, philosophers of science who are just trying to come up with a way of unifying the sciences without hierarchizing them mm-hmm. in the same, the same way that Ostwald did or that um, that Heckel did, but certainly they were um, working in parallel directions. Um, that's one thing. And then and then there's also another article by uh, an American, uh, Sander uh, Gliboff, who's looking at the fact that. Um, you know, Many people assume that Heckel was kind of old school by the beginning of the 20th century and that he was just going into this monist popular science because nobody accepted him as a serious biologist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Gliboff is showing is that, in fact, there are a lot of biologists um, working through this set of questions that, um, that Heckel had, had set up mm-hmm. um, so that it is actually... Um, a significant part of, of biological theory in the twentieth century, mm-hmm.
0: and um, I, I have to ask you: uh, Are there monists today? Are there people that say, "Yeah,
1: I'm a monist," and put up the flag? Um, yeah, it's the term is definitely coming back in philosophy. Um, you can you can see it emerging in many places. You have um, uh, key biologists, Michael Ruse, oh, yeah, uh, Michael Edward, Ruse. W- Edward O. Wilson. Mm-hmm. I mean, these kind of big names in the in the philosophy of science. Um, you know, making using that term and, and essentially saying that you know science is monistic, um, and then you know we have a in specific disciplines that are very popular now. There's a there's a real monist wave, I think. So, for instance, evolutionary psychology yeah. is a big topic today. And whereas a generation ago, people would have sort of looked down their nose, I, I think, at, at evolutionary biology. Um, today, people seem to uh, find it very convincing, mm-hmm. the idea that um, you know, we can explain the origin of religion out of the principle of natural selection. Mm-hmm. So that Daniel Dennett, who's one of these you know, contemporary atheists, wrote an article uh, entitled, What is the Evolutionary Good of God? Mm-hmm. Right? So it reduces the entire history of religion down to, what's the advantage of having a, a fantasy about a, an invisible being? Mm-hmm. You know <laughs> um, that that is some kind of advantage in the competition between humans, right right uh, so well, that's a kind well, of monist reduction that that is happening
0: well, I want to thank you for um telling us a lot about monism. I think this stuff is absolutely fascinating, and I hope readers of the book do, and I hope that they listen to this podcast because I've really enjoyed uh talking to you today, Todd. Um, mm-hmm. Our time is up, but let me ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is what are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I have a few projects, but I'm essentially continuing the work. Um, I, I just finished a book on secularism and religion in 19th century Germany. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, you know, a, a monograph, a, a whole book that I've written. And I'm, and I'm continuing into the 20th century now and looking at different aspects of kind of the politics of secularism. On the one hand, I'm looking at the socialist movement. In the early 20th century, and on the other hand, I'm I'm looking at um, conservative Christian responses to secularism. So I, I wanted to see how, for example, the Christian right organized in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s um, in opposition to secularism. So I'm really trying to to uncover the whole landscape of um, you know of what secularism meant in the early 20th century, and you know trying to really show how. Particularly in the German case, how, how crucial it is to understanding the, the political crises and conflicts of the late Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, all that sounds terrific. I want to have you on again when the monograph comes out. So shoot me an email when that appears. Okay. I will. I will. All right. And I uh, want to thank everybody who listens to the New Books Network for tuning in today. I guess you don't tune in anymore, you download. So for downloading today. And I especially want to thank Todd Weir for coming on and talking about his book, Monism, Science, Philosophy, Religion, and the History of a Worldview. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network, so thanks and goodbye, Todd.
1: Thank you very much. All right,
0: and thanks to all the listeners. Bye-bye.